This is Fine Music Radio, and replacing people of note this week is the final in our series of Fine Minds Lectures. To introduce the lecture this evening, here is Fenula Dowling. Hello, I'm Fenula Dowling from UCT's Centre for Extramural Studies. Today's Fine Minds Lecture was prepared by Professor Susan Kitson and her co-researcher on the Equus in Africa project, Erica Bramage. The lecture is called African Equus, Journeys of Blood and Dust. The music accompanying the lecture was composed by Josh Winter. The equids are a family of animals that includes horses, asses, donkeys and zebras. The Equus in Africa project brings together biology, evolution, genetics, history and art in its study of the equids of Africa. For today's talk, Erica and Sue have selected stories from their research, stories which tell how the relationship between mankind and Equus shaped the path of history on the African continent. Erica Bramage started life as a ballet dancer. While at KPAB, she completed a BA in English, Film Theory and History of Art. She then joined the film industry as a commercials director and is currently developing various film and theatre projects alongside Equus in Africa. A passion for all things equine began at an early age and is currently fulfilled by regular riding safaris. Susan Kitson is a professor of cell biology in the Department of Human Biology in the Faculty of Health Sciences at UCT. As an undergraduate, Sue studied zoology, biochemistry and mathematics at the University of the Witwatersrand. She obtained a BSc Honours in Zoology and taught biology and mathematics before returning to Witz to obtain MSc and PhD degrees in developmental biology. She calls herself a developmental geneticist and stem cell biologist. And among other things, she studies the embryological development of the skin and eyes. Sue is currently serving as Deputy Dean of Postgraduate Studies in the Faculty of Health Sciences at UCT. We are very pleased to have Professor Kitson here today to tell us stories of the horse family in Africa. I'd like to start by introducing the Equus in Africa project. A few years ago, colleagues Erica Bramage, Catherine Leach-Lewis and Bruce Harris got together with an idea to create a documentary series of the life of equids in Africa. They began to do the research and one morning I met Erica and was intrigued by the evolution and the biological aspects of this project. In 1976, the famous paleontologist Mary Leakey and her team were working in a region 20 kilometers east of Lytoli in the East African country of Tanzania. They were excavating in a rock layer known to be rich in fossilized hominids, 
And they made a finding that was to set the anthropology world abuzz because there, impressed in the fossilized rocks, were footprints of two upright walking hominids that had strolled across the savannah some 3.5 million years ago. The nearby Sandyman volcano was spewing ash onto the plains on which these bipeds had walked, and the subsequent falling ash sealed and preserved the footprint impressions. Studies of these footprints revealed that they were the fossil footprints of Australopithecus afarensis, a hominid on the side branch of evolution of modern humans. As if the hominid footprint discovery was not enough, in the same geological layer, the archaeologists found footprints of two equids, a mare and a foal, whose footprints wove in between those of the mare and are lying side by side of those of the hominids. The feet were made up of a single large middle toe or hoof, very much like those we see in modern horses, zebras and asses. But in addition, these equids had two little hooflets on each side of the main hoof. The footprints were of an ancient species of equid called Hipparion. The three-toed Hipparions were in fact very widely distributed across Africa, even to Cape Town, where fossils have been found in the West Coast Fossil Park. When I first heard of the Parians, I was intrigued because my basic biology training had taught me that horses evolved in North America, not in Africa. So what was this pre-horse doing here in Africa? How and when did it get here? Did its offspring and descendants survive? And was it the ancestor of the horses we find in Africa today? The evolution of the horse was a multi-continental process with many speciation and diversification events followed by extinctions and die-offs. To uncover the mystery of the Hipparians and their presence in Africa, we must go back 55 million years to the beginning of the Eocene period. At this time, the world was wetter, and the continents were arranged differently from how they are now. North and South America were not joined. Europe was isolated from Asia by the Turgai Straits, and Africa was an island. In the forests of North America lived a dog-sized animal, browsing on leaves and fruits of the forest. Its teeth were short and stumpy, much like ours, and this enabled it to crush the soft foods. Each foot had four toes, almost like the pads of a dog's foot, with claws at the tips. The small animal was named Eohippus, or Dawn Horse. Eohippus soon spread over land bridges from America into Asia and later, when Asia became joined to Europe as a result of continental drift, they spread into Europe. Eohippus thrived for about 20 million years without much change, but eventually they died out as the world began to dry out and the forests were replaced by grasslands. In North America, the small Eohippus had given rise to a number of larger equid species with longer legs, toes that began to develop into hooves, and with larger and more complex teeth adapted to grinding. By the end of the Miocene, about 10 million years ago, there were at least six distinct groups of equids in the Americas, including the Hipparions. The Hipparions then spread into Asia and into Africa, where they were hunted by early hominids. And that is where the Hipparion mare and foal of Aldivai come from. 
After a million years successful career on earth, all the Heparins died out on all the continents, leaving only their skeletons and footprints to remind us of their once dominant presence. So no, their parents were not the ancestors of the horses and zebras we find in Africa today. So we follow the journey further. Back in America, about seven million years ago, the actual ancestors of today's horse were beginning to emerge. Fossil finds reveal that the cytoids began to disappear in this line of equids, and after three million years of evolution, only one toe was left. Eventually, about four million years ago, the ancestor of Equus was born. This species was named Equus simplicidens and had a rigid zebra-like body and stood 13 hands high at the shoulder. They had long legs with a single hoof on each foot and were equipped with effective, renewable grinding teeth. A little later, so to speak, the offspring of Simplicidens crossed over the Bering Straits from Alaska into Asia during the Ice Age of the Pliocene. It is commonly imagined that animals cross over the Bering Straits over the actual ice bridges that form during such ice ages, but this is not correct. In fact, during ice ages, water is trapped at the poles in vast quantities, so much so that the overall sea level across the world drops, exposing land bridges over which animals can migrate and spread. Equus simplicidens spreads far and wide to all corners of Eurasia, but the first to make a move out of the Middle East into Africa were the zebras. They gradually migrated from the north of the continent to the west and to the south, evolving into a number of different species, which today are represented by gravies, plains and mountain zebras, and also the now extinct quagga. Modern molecular genetics using DNA from ancient and fossil bones and powerful bioinformatic tools has shown that this diversification took place within Africa, while the Asian ancestors gradually died off. The next to enter Africa, about half a million years after the zebras, were the asses, and they thrived in the tough desert and dry environments of the north. Then, about 6,000 years ago, Africans living in the area of Somalia and Ethiopia domesticated the asses. The outcome was the pliable donkey, whose strength and willingness soon contributed greatly to the improvements in agriculture, transport and trade. Let's now leave the zebras and asses so happy in their African homeland and return to Asia where the story of the horses continued to play out. They had diversified into many different shapes and sizes, adapting to cold or heat, to forests and deserts. Somewhat ironically, all equids completely died out in the Americas, an extinction event that also killed off most of the large mammals, including mammoths and large antelopes. It is not known why this mass extinction occurred. Perhaps it was climate change, perhaps sickness, but theory and some evidence point to overhunting by modern humans who had just arrived in the Americas. And to add a further irony, the birthplace of Equus did not see horses at all until about four million years later, in 1519 to be precise, when the first Spanish conquistadors led by Hernando Cortes brought horses from Cuba into Mexico. But I'm jumping ahead. The fate of horses in Eurasia was following the same downward trend in numbers as occurred in the Americas, and disaster was looming. 
The ever-expanding populations of humans were hunting horses to almost extinction. The archaeological evidence is telling. There have been many identified sites of mass slaughter, as well as of systematic hunting, butchering, and the eating of horse flesh. But rescue was fortunately at hand. In various places in the steppes of the Ukraine and Kazakhstan, some smart individual, probably a woman I would speculate, had the bright idea that instead of running around chasing horses in an adrenaline and testosterone high, it might be a better idea to be a bit more caring, to herd the horses, keeping them close, making hunting and slaughter easier and thereby ensuring a more consistent food supply. Thus did domestication of horses begin some 6,000 years ago. In fact, humans had already had quite some experience in domestication, having successfully brought the dog, the sheep, cattle and pigs under control, and more recently the donkey. Horse domestication greatly influenced the rise of civilizations and the course of history, changing the shape of nations and human lifestyles. The first horse riders were the nomadic horsemen of the Mongolian steppes. They were superb horsemen, and when led by great leaders such as Genghis Khan, they relentlessly harassed and ultimately conquered the imperial armies of sedentary states in Asia and in Europe. Once conquered, horses enabled rapid advance of agriculture and animal husbandry, affording efficient transport to distant trade routes, facilitating exchange of cultures, and the spread of inventions, religions, science, and art. This pattern of war and conquest, followed by peace and growth, has played itself out over and over in history, with the horse taking central stage in tipping the balances of power, both militaristic and physical. Horsepower was absolutely transformative. With all the countries of the Near East awash with horses, and with the nation-states of Assyria, Persia, and the Levant all vying for power, the stage was finally set for the entry of horses into nearby Africa. Where the river Nile fans out into the delta before it enters the Mediterranean Sea, there's a rich repository of archaeological finds that are of great significance, as it was here that horses were thought to have first crossed the threshold into Africa. Into this region came the people from the Levant, known as the Hyksos. They entered the delta around 1650 BC, bringing their horses, their chariots, and their composite bows with them. This slow infiltration took place during the unstable intermediate period between the Middle and the New Kingdom dynasties. The Hyksos eventually conquered the whole of Egypt and became its 15th dynasty. They built their summer residence at Avaris, an ancient city which subsequently became buried and was only discovered again in the last 50 years. The Hyksos practiced horse burials and the earliest horse burial in Africa was found here at a palace complex of a Hyksos king. 
The Hyksos ruled for about 150 years, but they were very unpopular, and eventually were defeated by the Egyptians under Amos I, using the horses and chariots that the Hyksos had introduced. The arrival of the horse and chariot fundamentally changed the nature of Egyptian culture and warfare. Prior to their arrival, the culture was deistic, focusing on gods and the afterlife. With the arrival of the horse, they became more outward-looking, paving the way for Egypt's rise as the supreme Near Eastern imperial power. Horses soon became prized possessions of the elite, particularly the pharaoh, who was frequently shown in warrior mode with his chariot and horses. There are occasional depictions of horses being ridden at this time, but it seems that riding in a chariot was thought to be more dignified, especially as those on board were less likely to fall off. <laughs> the handy stirrup would only be invented about 2,000 years later. Exquisite paintings on the walls of the tombs of nobles display images of horses of small stature, about 13 hands, with backs no higher than the waist of a man, and with well-shaped heads and arched necks. Looking similar to the Arabian we know today, these horses were probably one of the Arabian's ancestors, the tiny Caspian horse, which came from the Zagros Mountains in what is now modern-day Iran, and which still exists today in a few small protected herds. By the latter part of the New Kingdom in the mid-14th century BC, horses were being exchanged as diplomatic gifts between Egypt and the empires of Babylonia, Assyria and the Mitanni. An incredibly fortuitous find of a cache of clay cuneiform tablets, known as the Amarna letters, dating to just before the reign of Tutankhamun, give us a good idea of the role that horses played in powerful political interchanges. The numbers of horses increased in Egypt until at the height of the New Kingdom there were enough of them to create a powerful army. In the 19th dynasty that followed, Ramesses II moved his capital from Thebes and rebuilt it in the delta on the old remains of the city of Avaris, and it was strategically situated there to deal with the threat of the Hittite Empire in the north. He called it Pi Ramesses, meaning House of Ramesses, great in victory. The city of Pi Ramesses was described in ancient Egyptian hymns as magnificently rich, but today there are no visible remains and it is almost all under cultivated land. But recent extensive surveys by archaeologists using cesium magnetometry have revealed some of the world's oldest stables below the surface, stretching for more than 17,000 square meters and able to house 480 horses, complete with limestone feeding troughs and tethering stones in each stall. The excavation team also uncovered the largest foundry for bronze production ever discovered, where tons of bronze were processed in a single day at high temperatures in an operation that was almost industrial in scale. Also discovered was a chariotry with workshops and an adjacent training ground, all of which give us additional insight into the strategic role of the horse and the chariot during this era. Pi Ramesses would have been the launching point for King Ramesses when he engaged with the Hittite army at the Battle of Kadesh, in 1274 BC, in an area now found in modern-day Syria. It is the earliest battle in recorded history for which details of tactics and formations are known.
and it was one of the largest chariot battles ever fought, reputedly five to 6,000 chariots. True to form, Ramesses claimed victory at Kadesh and had the official Egyptian version in the form of a poem inscribed in grand scale on the walls of the temples across Egypt at Abydos, Luxor, Karnak, Abu Simbel, and at his mortuary temple. Details of his personal valor against overwhelming odds appear on the walls of temples. With breathtaking arrogance, he claims to have fought the battle single-handedly at times, supported only by his great chariot horses, which carried him into the fray. Just by the way, the Hittite account of the battle differs significantly from that of the Egyptian king. The Hittite king also claimed a great victory at Kadesh. So, in fact, the battle was probably a draw. After the magnificent heights of the Ramesside era, there was a period of decline and chaos in Egypt. It was during this time that the kings of the Napitan dynasty of Nubia and Cush moved northwards and reunified an Egypt that was torn apart by conflict. Nubia's black pharaohs created an empire for three quarters of a century that stretched from the present-day Khartoum to the Mediterranean Sea. In 1919, in the desert sands of Nubia at El Kuru, in present-day North Sudan, George Reisner was excavating the tombs of the black pharaohs when he made a remarkable discovery. Twenty-four horses had been buried there standing upright, their bodies adorned with elaborate trappings and necklaces of gold, silver, bronze and faience. Facing away from the royal pyramids, as if preparing to take their royal masters on a final ride, these horses were buried 27 centuries ago. They had been wearing gilded falcon plume carriers, which once carried feathers, symbolizing majesty and power. And the beads encircling the necks depicted Hathor, the ancient Egyptian goddess of love. Fast forward about 600 years when Egypt was conquered by Rome. By 40 AD, Egypt and all of Mediterranean Africa had come under Roman rule. African equids were a vital cog in the control of North Africa by the Romans. The expansion of the Roman Empire depended on a network of roads to carry horses, carts and infantry to every corner of the empire and to keep the peace and ensure the empire's longevity. Horses were also a vital means of conveying information. Messages were delivered by the Cursus Publicus, an imperial communications service that spanned the entire empire. Couriers on horseback stopped only to change horses at staging posts on the way, and they could cover up to 60 miles a day. By the end of the reign of the Emperor Claudius in 54 AD, there was a continuous coastal highway that stretched for 2,100 miles across North Africa, from the Atlantic to the Nile. By 137 AD, the Via Hadriana crossed Egypt's eastern desert from Antinopolis to Berenice. All the members of the African Equid family walked these roads at some point in the Roman Empire's history. Exotic gravy zebras and wild asses would have walked this way, or were trundled in carts to meet their fate in the staged wild beast hunts which took place in the amphitheatre, such as at El Gem and Leptis Magna, or far away in Rome. Horses, but also zebras and asses, were harnessed to chariots and raced at circuses and hippodromes. 
Islam began as a small flame in Arabia, but soon became an unstoppable force that swept across the Sahara on the backs of horses. Egypt, Libya, Algeria and Morocco were all conquered by the end of the 7th century. New pathways were created for trade and commerce between North Africa and the growing West Africa empires of Ghana, Mali, Songhai and Kanembornu, which had emerged between the 9th and the 16th centuries. Small city-states originally built on gold and iron were bound together through commerce and conquest, and these factors, together with horse and camels, enabled them to expand into empires. The Kingdom of Ghana was one of the first to emerge, and its rich gold supply enabled it to develop into a powerful kingdom. At its peak in the 11th century, it had a huge army of 200,000, and its princes rode horses adorned with blankets of woven gold. It's quite fascinating, and not generally known, that even before Christopher Columbus sailed into the Americas, in West Africa, medieval cavalry knights were riding into battle against rival states, loaded with shields, axes, lances, and with both horses and riders wearing chain mail coats. The fall of Timbuktu to the Muslims in the 16th century led to mass migration south, into the Babola region of what is now Burkina Faso. The formidable Fulani warrior, Sega Samba, was one of these new arrivals. He subjugated the local farmers and hunters, creating the Emirate of Barani. The conquered peoples were allowed to live in peace on condition that they paid annual obeisance to the new Fulani chief. The modern festival Hippik de Barani, or Fetchiba, is a recreation of that ancient ceremony of allegiance. I'd like to read an entertaining description of the Feshiba by writer Stephen Davies, who recently attended one of these festivals. Since the year 2000, the tiny village of Barani in northwest Burkina Faso has played host to an extraordinary horse festival one of the most colourful and arresting spectacles in the whole of West Africa. In Burkina Faso, horse riding is more than a leisure pastime. It is a tradition, a love and the law of an entire nation. It is no coincidence that the country's coat of arms depicts a horse, that the coveted first prize of Ouagadougou's Pan-African Film Festival is the Golden Stallion, and that the nickname of the national football team is the Stallions. In countries populated by dozens of different ethnic groups, national identity is often an elusive quarry. But here in Burkina Faso, one thing is sure. That quarry has a mane, a tail and four hooves. The town of Barani has no roads, no electricity or running water, secondary school or clinic. It has no phone lines and no mobile network. But today, this unprepossessing village will be the focus of the whole country's attention. The radio-television Burkina truck has already arrived. Two government ministers are on their way with an armed convoy, and those charged with speeches are nervously rehearsing the names of multitudinous mayors and countless chiefs. Horses in Burkina Faso have always been symbols of royalty, nobility and wealth. And today's shenanigans are sure to bring out the kings in droves. The first horse arrives, and what a horse it is. 
a pale chestnut stallion with rings on its bridle and bells on its reins. It lopes down the sandy track and comes to a halt before the company of early risers. For a moment, even the griots go quiet. The rider turns his heels, touches the reins lightly on the horse's withers and leans forward in his saddle. The stallion bows, furls his front legs and kneels on the sand, lowering his belly to the ground, followed in an arc by the long neck and the jeweled jowls. Motionless, save for the rise and fall of one glossy flank, the stallion lies prostrate in front of the chief's gate. When the dust has settled, the knight steps up onto the side of his horse and plants his feet wide, hands on hips, his jaw jutting and gaze level. More and more horsemen are coming down the sandy track, all dressed up in their fetchiba best, with tasseled bridles, patchwork numbers and glorious technicolor dream saddles. The assembled prey singers bang the drums around their necks in riotous acclaim. The tam-tams start up, and right on cue, a stallion comes out of the line to dance. He paws the ground, trots on the tips of his hooves, bows, rears, and wheels around like a magic teacup roller coaster ride. One by one, the riders show off their skill, and most of them finish their routine by bringing their horse to lie down before the chief then standing on its flank, thereby demonstrating the absolute mastery of the animal. But it is no more Jaw, a blacksmith from Bankas, who steals the show. Dressed in pristine white robes, he prostrates his horse, hops out of the saddle, sandwiches himself between the animal's legs and pretends to go to sleep. The spectators rise to their feet and crane their necks. There is laughter and thunderous applause. No more jaw is using his stallion legs as a bedspread, they laugh. The cameraman scampers about trying to get the best shot, and a tide of crazy-toothed griots surge forward towards the sleeping chevalier and drum him back to life. The mayor of Socotta leans forward in his seat and waves a 5,000-franc note, a fit reward for the heroic blacksmith. Although horses were found in many regions of West Africa, they were not able to move further south into the equatorial forests and beyond because of a biological barrier of tropical diseases which horses, camels, and donkeys could not survive. So there were no indigenous horses in southern Africa when the Portuguese cast their eyes towards the fabled riches of Africa and began their explorations there in the 15th century. One of the earliest written records we have of horses in southern Africa comes from the writings of a Jesuit priest called Manclaro, who accompanied Ferrando Barreto on an expedition up the Zambezi River in 1572 to look for the legendary empire of Manamatapa. The area was rich in gold and other minerals. Facilitated by Arab traders, by 1400, a network of trade extended from Mutapa via the Zambezi River to the Indian Ocean and thence to India and China. The war between the Crescent and the Cross was raging. The Portuguese were determined to take control of the trade routes from the Muslims and to find the mines where the Queen of Sheba got her gold, 
for the glory of God and the profit of Portugal. Monclara, in fact, represented the malign power behind the throne of King Sebastian of Portugal, and the kindly Beretta was instructed to obey him. Instead of taking the direct route to the mines via Safala, Monclara obliged the expedition to march up the Zambezi. This was in order to pass through the territory where a Jesuit priest had been killed by the chief of Monomotapa, under encouragement from Arab traders some years previously in 1561. Montclara wished to avenge his death. It was summer, and the journey followed a tortuous route through the fever-stricken jungles along the river, in which crocodiles and hippopotami wallowed. How incredible to imagine those 16th-century soldiers and cavalry, with their muskets and steel helmets and breastplates blazing in the African sun, marching along the Zambezi into the unknown in search of untold riches. The expedition traveled as far as Senna, about 200 miles up the river, where they were welcomed hospitably by the Arab traders. And then the oxen, the horses, and the men began to die. The fanatical Monclara saw his opportunity for revenge and accused the Arabs of poisoning the men and animals. Of course, the animals were really dying of schistosomiasis infection carried by the biting tsetse fly. The kind and gentle traders were put to death in the most horrific manner, described with cruel delight by Monclara. But despite this, the men and animals continued to die. Interestingly, Beretta's horse appears to have survived the journey possibly because it was always clad in a thick coat of mail, and the flies could not bite it. Beretta lost the greater part of his army in the swamps of that dolorous river, and they were forced to retreat by fever and disease. Far to the south in the 17th century, the horse was again poised to influence the course of history. The Dutch East Indian Company, or the VOC, needed to set up a refreshment station for its ships traveling between Holland and the East Indies, and Jan van Riebeek was responsible for setting up this halfway house at the tip of Africa. There were many indigenous peoples living in the Cape when van Riebeek arrived, the sand hunter-gatherers, the pastoral koina or Hottentots, and small fishing communities of strandloopers. There were domesticated cattle and sheep, but no horses or donkeys, only zebras and quaggas. Battling to survive in this remote outpost with its innumerable challenges, Van Riebeck needed horses to help build and protect his refreshment station, fetch wood from the forest, plough fields and thresh wheat. Amsterdam, unmoved, suggested that he availed himself of the wilde perden, zebras and quaggas. Van Riebeck initially planned to tame them, but he found he could not even catch them. The VOC's reluctance was due to the fact that in the 17th century, horses were unlikely to survive the long journey by ship from Holland, which took around four months. So they agreed to send some from Batavia in the East Indies instead, as that journey took only three months. So it was that the first horses in South Africa were of Eastern, not European type. They were small ponies of Java, of mixed Arab and Mongolian origin. Of those, only a few survived the journey, and often the ships were blown right past the Cape in our notorious southeaster, and ended up at St. Helena instead. If only I had more horses, Van Riebeck wailed in 1654, after his only stallion was eaten by lions. And to the VHC he wrote, It is wished 
that we had a few more horses than the two we have at present, both of which are being used for brickmaking. But Van Riebeck persevered and one by one horses arrived and he slowly built up a small herd. The fortuitous stranding of a ship carrying Persian Arabian horses added infusion of new blood, to which that of the Andalusian horses of Spain were added a century later. It was from this founding stock that the legendary Cape Horse evolved and subsequently the South African Burupert, which became famous for its hardiness, sure-footedness, beauty and powers of endurance. Its descendants became the horses most ridden by the Boer commandos in the Anglo-Boer War. By 1665 there were sufficient horses at the Cape to sell to Freeburgers, who, released from their obligations to the VOC, started to move inland from the original Cape outpost, taking their guns and horses with them. These mounted frontiersmen blended European-style organization with the highly mobile tactics of the fleet-footed Koina tribes. As different alliances were forged between settlers and, and indigenous peoples, the early history of colonial South Africa was dominated by the armed horsemen. The Cape Frontier Wars, or Africa's Hundred Year War, were a series of nine wars between the Xhosa tribes and the European settlers in the Eastern Cape between 1779 and 1879. This series of conflicts were complicated by complex tensions and shifting alliances between different colonial and indigenous groups. In the first of these wars, it was the Boer frontiersmen that used horses and guns to drive their closer back. But the indigenous population soon obtained horses themselves, and by the Seventh Frontier War in 1846, both sides had large numbers of horses and guns, British, Boers, Khoi and Fengu, against and Glambe and Tembu. At the same time and further to the north, other conflicts over land were underway. Ancestors of the Sutu people are known to have lived in southern Africa since the 5th century AD and arrived in the area of modern Lesotho around the 16th century. There they mingled with the Khoisan and established small chiefdoms. The early 19th century, between 1815 and about 1840, was a period of widespread chaos in the area, known as the Difikani, meaning crushing and scattering. Shaka's militarized Zulu state started a catastrophic chain reaction, in which one of the displaced tribes, the fleeing Matabele and their king Mizilikazi, created a trail of destruction from the area that is now the Free State, all the way to the Limpopo River. At the same time, the Boers and the Griko tribes were moving northwards. King Mushweshwe I, a skilled strategist and diplomat, gathered the scattered Sutu clans together in the impregnable mountain stronghold of Taba Bosuyu. It was while they were sheltering there around 1830 that they first encountered the marauding Griko tribes with a terrifying combination of horses and guns. Bashwe saw that horses and guns would enable him to expand his territory. Once the Basutu lost their initial fear of horses, which they had associated with the terrifying destructive power of the Griqua, they started to accumulate their own horses through raiding the Griqua and buying them from European traders, or acquiring them as payment for work on settler farms. Within a few years, the Basutu could raise a mounted force and within four decades they had become an equestrian nation, the strongest African tribe south of the Zambezi. 
Today, the Basutu pony is a symbol of national identity in Lesotho and permeates culture and ritual. Natural selection, a hard life in mountainous terrain with no food or shelter, molded the small horse and the Basutu pony became established as a distinct type, renowned for its spirit, sure-footedness and powers of endurance. The Anglo-Boer spread its fame throughout the British Empire and there are many stories of its courage and loyalty in the service of soldiers on both sides of the conflict. When the Boer War was declared in 1899, the British didn't regard the Boers as a serious military adversary and they thought it would be all over by Christmas. It was like David and Goliath, a ragtag band of upstart farmers against the might of the British Empire, with Britain and its colonial troops finally outnumbering the Boers by more than five to one. But it rapidly became clear that the Boers presented the British with several tactical challenges, one of which was that the entire Boer force was mounted, for to be horseless almost certainly meant capture. These farmers were also hunters who had spent almost all their lives in the saddle and were expert marksmen using long-range, high-velocity bullets. Conventional war strategies no longer applied and the unexpected resilience and mobile guerrilla tactics of the Boers extended the war by nearly two years, obliging the British to ship in, amongst other forces, huge numbers of cavalry from across the British Empire as well as Europe and the Americas. Some 360,000 horses and 106,000 mules and donkeys were brought in and unloaded at Port Elizabeth and Cape Town harbours to supplement the South African remounts that were requisitioned by them. The diversity of cavalry forces on the British side can be appreciated if one considers just one of the operations of the war, the Siege of Kimberley. There, 3,000 horsemen, led by General French, swept across the felt at Clipdrift and included the Royal Lancers, the Household Cavalry, the Hussars, the Lancers, the Dragoon Guards, the Royal Scots Greys, the New South Wales Lancers, Remington's Guides, and Australian, South African, and British Mounted Infantrymen. Many were riding South African-bred remounts. 500 horses died needlessly here on that single day, mostly of exhaustion and dehydration. The Anglo-Boer War is considered to be one of the last great horse wars, if one can consider any war great at all. The number of horses, mules and donkeys that died during the conflict was staggering, close to half a million, at the time a loss unprecedented in modern warfare. Many animals were killed in action, but many more died later from their wounds, from disease, from exhaustion, starvation, dehydration and exposure, and failure of the British to allow their horses to acclimatize after such a long sea voyage. The average life expectancy of a British war horse from the time of its arrival on South African soil was about six weeks. In contrast, the Boers had breeds that were better adapted to the environment. Both the Burepert and the Basutu pony were tough and agile and helped the Boers to prevail as long as they did against the overwhelming might of the British army. However, they paid a high price for their role in the war, losing great numbers of their finest. The Basutu pony never recovered from this loss, in fact, further exacerbated by the export of 2,000 Basutu ponies to German Southwest Africa 
and an unknown number to East Africa in the First World War. I would like to end by describing some examples of extraordinary bonds that have developed between human and horse, a bond that must have started thousands of years ago when horses first were domesticated in Asia. The typical Boer soldier had great affection for his horse, a depth of feeling clearly revealed in Denise Reitz's graphic account of the conflict, in which he makes frequent mention of the horses he himself rode. The first was a Basutu pony, on which he went off to join the long columns of shaggy men on shaggy horses, which were gathering to invade Natal at the start of hostilities. Later on, he had a gentle old groan which served him well, and he was devastated when one morning he noticed the symptoms of fatal horse sickness, which killed off many horses during the conflict. Many British too had great affection for their horses. An incident described by Winston Churchill in his autobiography, My Early Life, exemplifies this well. Churchill, then a war correspondent, was riding with Montmorency's scouts when they tried to intercept 200 Boers who were making for a copy some distance ahead. The scouts arrived too late and had to gallop back to their former position with bullets whistling around them. Churchill's horse was terrified, plunged and bolted, and he found himself alone, dismounted, and within close range of enemy fire, with no cover of any sort. Suddenly a scout appeared beside him and halted long enough for Churchill to mount behind him. The trooper's horse was hit with an explosive bullet, but the gallant animal, bleeding profusely, exerted itself to the utmost, and the men made their escape. As they went, the trooper kept exclaiming, my poor horse, my poor horse, the devils, but their hour will come. Churchill, trying to console him, said, Never mind, young man, you saved my life. Ah, replied the trooper, but it's the horse I'm thinking about. That was the final in our series of Fine Minds lectures here on Fine Music Radio. It was called African Equus, Journeys of Blood and Dust, and was presented by Professor Susan Kitson of UCT. Now to take us up to our next program with Shiloh Noon, here is the first movement of the Clarinet Concerto, number one by Karl Maria van Weber. <laughs> 